Welcome to the I-24 News Podcast, Synagogue and State. I'm your host, Mike Wagenheim. Happy to be joined today from Israel by Shoshana Keats Jaskul. She is the founding member of Chokhmat Nashim, which uh, translates in English to uh, women's wisdom. She also uh, writes for the Jerusalem Post and blogs for uh, entities like the Times of Israel. Shoshana, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I need to talk to you first about your organization, which is a critical uh, entity within uh, Israeli politics and really women's politics as a whole. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, right. So Chokhmat Nashim is a group of Orthodox women who have been trying very hard to push back against the extremism that we find in the Jewish community and in Israeli society because of the fact that um, you know, this podcast is called Synagogue and State, so certainly you'll be discussing the fact that uh, the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox parties have pretty much monopoly over all of the religious um, uh, establishment in the country. And so while it, in America it's very different in the sense that you can have, you, know, you could be as religious as you want, but it won't affect your rights as a, as a civilian, it's not the same in Israel. So even people who aren't religious um, wind up having to be um, beholden to the way that the interpretation of Judaism is is done through the ultra-religious parties. Um, when you get married, when you have a baby, if you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, even where you get buried and certainly how you get divorced. So what we've done is we noticed that there were things that were outside of halakha, halakha being Jewish law, um, that were being uh, enacted. And it's one thing if you know you have Jewish law and you say, okay, this is Jewish law and this is how it's going to work. Um, but when you, for example, don't allow pictures of women, when you don't allow girls to um, go up on a stage, when you don't give women um, a platform in politics, you know, these are not within Jewish law. And so what we've done is to say, okay, here's Jewish law, here's where we are, we need to close this gap because people are being harmed, right? So women, if they can't advertise with their faces, for example, they have a, a less effective advertising. Girls who don't have role models, because there's no pictures of girls and women in books and magazines, this is a problem. Uh, when you have uh, people who can't get divorced because the, the Beit Zin does not listen to them because they don't give them the rights that they're supposed to have, this is a significant problem. For example, while it's true in Jewish law that the man has to give the woman a divorce, it's certainly not true that a religious court should send a woman back to an abusive husband. And that, and unfortunately, what's happening is that we see this extremism more and more in the Jewish, in the Jewish community and Israeli society. And we have had to be this voice calling out what we see, um, where that difference is and what we can do differently. Like what can the community do differently? What can the state do differently? What can rabbis and individuals do differently? There's a lot to be done. And we have taken on that role of shedding light on the problem, offering alternatives and giving people concrete ways to make change. So you mentioned the problems. What about the alternatives? What about the solutions? What are you and your, your cohorts working on? So, it depends on the issue, okay? But basically what we've found is when women are part of the policy-making and the decision-making uh, bodies, so things are automatically better, right? So when you have women's perspectives put into the conversation, when you have women's uh, experiences put into the conversation, so all of a sudden, and already the conversation changes because no matter how wonderful a man is, he will never be in a situation that the, a Jewish woman is. He will never be begging for a divorce. 
and have the threat that his children for the rest of whomever he winds up with afterwards would be mamzerim. It's not an issue for a man. Uh, a man is not being denied the opportunity to to advertise in the right way. Men are not being denied um, the opportunity to learn from, well, that's not true. They actually can't learn from women. <laughs> but there's a lot of things that men simply don't experience the same way as women do. So the first thing that we've noticed is that when women are in these policymaking positions, or at the very least at the table when these policies are being made, that automatically makes a difference. So we advocate for that. There's also things that a community can do. If there's a magazine, if there's a book, if your kids come home with school books where there's no girls in them, it is on you. It is on the community to say, this is not acceptable to us. We want this to be changed. And to go to your school board and to go to the to the the Misrata Chinuch, the Ministry of Education, and to go to the principal and say, don't purchase these books, purchase these other books. These are the books that we want to have in our class. Or if a publication that comes to your house doesn't have women, first of all, it's not legal in Israel to not show pictures of women. So you certainly could send them a lawyer's letter. Um, but beyond that, you certainly should not be advertising in these in these um, these publications, and you shouldn't be purchasing these publications. But more than that, what happens when your own school or your own synagogue starts to take away pictures of women? Because that's what everyone's doing. Because what happens is when there's an extreme and nobody talks against it, so that becomes the norm, and that's what we see. So now it's like abnormal to show women. At this point, we're like praising World Mizrahi for showing women in their publications, which is an absurd position to be in. Women are 50%, more than 50% of the population, and they're being erased. And so what has to happen is the community needs to say, listen, we don't want these extreme policies. We don't want to have magazines and publications where there's no women and girls. We don't want our schools to take the girls off of the Instagram feed, which is what happened in a school in New Jersey that after I was there last year. Uh, you know, I was in a, in a town in New Jersey last year, and everyone was like, oh, wow, this is so terrible. And we certainly see it elsewhere, but we don't see it here. It just doesn't happen here. And then within a month, I got a phone call from a woman who said to me, you will not believe what just happened. The school took away the girls from the Instagram feed, from the school's Instagram feed. And it's a co-ed school. So it's not like the people who go to that school know what they're looking for, know what they're getting into. And this principal made this decision without speaking to anyone. So she asked our help, how can we speak to the principal, A, without becoming those troublemakers, quote-unquote, but B, so that there's a good relationship so he understands the damage, not just undoes it, God willing, but also understands why this is not something that we should be doing. And we worked with her to find the right wording, to figure out the way to say it, and she was successful in getting the principal to understand that this was something that was not appropriate for uh, for their school, that it was not something being more religious, but rather that it was actually damaging to the girls and to the community as a whole. The boys too, by the way. It, this is not just about women and girls. I spoke um, a few, like a few weeks ago in New Jersey, and a man afterwards rose, raised his hand and he asked, "You know, can I can I ask you a question?" I said, "Sure." And he said, "You're speaking a lot about how this affects women and girls, but I have to say that as a social worker who treats a lot of couples in Brooklyn, I see this hyper-modesty and this over-segregation and how it affects the Jewish family. He said couples can't function as couples. He doesn't know how to relate to her as a woman. She is only knows to be silent, knows to be modest, knows to be quiet, knows to not to not be overly this, overly that. So she can't communicate to him her needs. He doesn't even know to ask her her needs. And they come to me and they, they want to function, they want to have a good marriage, they simply don't know how to relate to one another. And so 
you, what you have here is, is really something that's damaging, not just to girls, to women, but really to the whole Jewish community. And for us, and I see that, I see that in Beit Shemesh, I see it in Jerusalem. I see, you see grown men, grown men, who are clearly religious, pulling down signs of girls and women damaging uh, uh, someone else's property. I mean, not only is it illegal, but it's also against halacha, right? Nizikin, there's issues of damages here. And they've turned this idea of modesty into such a thing to um, to to worship that it's become like an avodazara, like meaning it's like become like an idolatry of anything for the cause, anything for this issue. And they completely don't realize what they're damaging in their wake. And so we must show and show, shine the spotlight all the time. It happens also with women's health. I could go on forever. Well, <laughs> the, the question I have is, is how did it come to this? Because there is so much in Jewish law, in Jewish text about the prominent role that women have played through Jewish history, the respect that they're supposed to be given. How did it come from from the stories that you know we learned growing up of these Jewish heroines who stepped to the forefront, who had leadership roles within their communities, to so many now who are being shoved to the back, never to be seen again? How does this happen? You know, the people who have different um, theories about how and why this is happening. Uh, Rabbi Blau of Yeshiva University, actually, he's we just released a video um, that you guys should all see, and he says in this video, he says with the prominence of women, with the learning of women, with the advancement of women, uh, especially with women becoming the breadwinners in a large segment of the ultra-Orthodox community, um, he said this is a pushback against that. This is a way of, he says, making them non-people so that you can control them. I don't know that I would say that they are conscious, that most people who do this are conscious of that um, motivation, but I do think that there are elements of there's two there's two there's the responses on the one hand to the prominence of women and on the second hand and other people like to say this which is so to me insane they say well the secular world is so permissive and so promiscuous and so exploit exploitative of women that we are going to go the opposite way but the irony is that erasing women is not the opposite of exploiting women it's exact same thing because you're both putting women solely as a sexual object one by exploiting her by exposing her and you know pornography and all of this and the other by saying she can't be seen it's literally the same thing it's two sides sides of the same coin and so what the judy what judaism has always always been about the middle way it's always been about balance right there's very few things that are completely forbidden in judaism usually what you have is something that is controlled or something that you have to do in a certain way, right? We have to say blessings over wine and food, and we have to not eat milk and meat together. Uh, and yes, there are certain foods that we're forbidden to eat, but most things we're certainly able to eat as long as we do it in the right way. And what's happened here is that it, it's, a, it's an extreme take. So if they're trying to solve an issue, then they're, all they're doing is making it worse because they're not solving that issue, right? They're identifying something, but they're not identifying the source of it. They're simply just saying, we're going to go the opposite way, which never works. It never works, and it, it's causing tremendous damage. Is there a point, and, and we look at the divide as well, between the religious nationalist camp, the religious Zionists, who, of all people, they picked a yellow chiquette, a secular woman, to lead their mm -hmm. ticket, which was a, a big deal at the time in Israel, and the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, who have zero interest 
of putting a, a woman anywhere on their ticket, let alone at the head of their ticket. There is obviously a movement to try to gain more traction for women in Israeli politics, specifically within the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox sector. What are the chances of success? Where Where is the movement at this point? Is it in its infancy, or is there some breakthrough on the horizon? So I'll tell you, two, you said two different things. The fact that Ayala Shaked was put as the head of the party had nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that she's a woman and everything to do with the fact that she's popular. And if she was a religious woman, they would not have made her the head. The religious parties, the religious men in in uh, in the political, in the Knesset and in the political parties are very happy to work with secular women. Secular women are not a threat. Religious women are a threat. And they will not work with religious women. They will not put religious a religious woman as number one. They will not put religious women, meaning there's, there's the Datilu Umi party, which will not put a woman as number one. And then there are the Haredi parties who will not put women uh, women at all on their lists whatsoever, even though there was a, there was a, um, a lawsuit that was just one uh, that they said they have to put women on their list. So all they're going to do is put a woman at 165, you know, an unrealistic spot, because they... First of all, this is where it is about control, okay? So they can say that, oh, no, we represent all of our women. They don't represent their women. And not only do they not represent their women, but they don't go to the Knesset committee meetings on health for women. They don't go to the committee meetings on domestic violence, domestic abuse. They simply don't relate to it whatsoever. And that's why the Haredi women, that's where the real change is happening. Haredi women are coming together and they're saying, no more. We will not vote for you if you're not representing us. And there's a significant movement a significant movement of women, thousands of women who are simply saying no more. We we want a voice. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be represented. You're not doing your job. And I think had the men been smart enough to listen, Ari Derry a few years ago took uh, his wife, Yaffa Derry, uh, and... Ari, Ari Derry, for, for folks that don't know, the interior minister and a mem- uh, the leader of the Shah's party. Go ahead. Yeah. So he took his wife, uh, Yafadarian, uh, daughter of um, Ravavaji Yosef, who had started the Shas party, and put them on the women's committee for Shas. This was when Adina was being, Adina being, Adina Barshalom, um, was being offered a spot in other parties, and he was trying to to bring her back and say, no, 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 we'll take care of it. So the 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 part, the women's, um, I don't remember what they called it at the time, the women's party of Shas, whatever it was was it lived and died in those two hours that they had a, a press conference. The two women don't even like each other, and they barely tolerated one another. So they had the pictures, they had the videos, and then that was it, nothing. Um, and if they'd been smart, they would have put real committee together, and listened to the women, and done something for the schools, for the education, for the social work, for, the, for, the, for, their, um, for their teachers. They have a whole school system. Um, if they'd been smart, they would have listened, and then they wouldn't have the problems that they're having. So now they have a lot of women who are very disaffected and very upset. And Baruch Hashem, a lot of the women in the Haredi community are are simply saying this is not going to happen anymore. And they're finding very many, many ways to be um, shpia, to be, to have influence and to and to let people know, to let their politicians know that if they're not going to represent them, they're going to represent themselves. Where it's happening, it's happening not only in that way, but it's also happening within the communities themselves, where the women are taking things into their own hands. So, for example, they're taking their boys to learn English and math. If they're not going to get it in school and they want their children to be able to support themselves, so then they go and they do it in after-school programs, and that's what they're doing. There's a, a big um, demand for 
English and math after school because the schools don't offer them. And the mothers are just saying, you know, the mothers are the ones who are more educated in, in secular studies, right? The, the mothers are the ones who have the secular education. They understand the importance of English and math. They understand the importance of having to work, function in the workplace. And so the mothers are the ones taking their kids to these school, these after school um, programs so that the boys will have a future, God willing. And so while you may not see it in two years or in five years, you will, you are seeing it, and if you pay attention to what's happening, you'll understand how it's going to manifest itself in the next generation. Any threat to vote outside of the Haredi parties? Oh, there's no question they're voting outside the Haredi parties. There's no question. And and they have an entire movement called uh, which means if I can't be elected, I'm not going to vote for you. And so there's, I think, 15,000 women on the Facebook page at this point. Um, and that's just the Facebook page. Um, but they have a whole movement, and they certainly do vote outside. They certainly vote outside of those parties without question. Look, the parties, on the other hand, are very popular because they take care of the budgets for the schools and the stipends for the yeshivas. And so you have six to any. The mayor of Beit Shemesh got into Shas's party last elections by the skin of his teeth. Now, the mayor of Beit Shemesh tanked the city, tanked it. I mean, the Revacha was the the welfare department was n literally not getting its budget from the from the federal government because it was so mismanaged. So the guy who tanked Beit Shemesh is now going to be an MK in the government. These are the people that are on their list. Like it's it's insanity. And yet most of the people who are voting for them, they don't realize, they don't understand. Not that they're stupid. They're not stupid. But they don't recognize and understand what it really means to be responsible. Look at this one. The head of UTJ, the head of, of, of the Ashkenazi Haredi party, is actively assisting a known pedophile molester to, to evade justice and not be extradited to Australia. I mean, whatever. Don't get me started on this. I, I need to ask you, as, as we wrap up our, our podcast, and I, w I wish I had two hours with you, um, <laughs> women. In Israeli politics in general, we, yeah. we look across the spectrum. There's only one woman leading a party right now. The average number of, of women, and, and of course, two of the parties don't allow any, but the average number of women is, is pathetic. Uh, even now, and a colleague and I were having a discussion this morning about the Blue and White Party, um, how they have you know a decent amount of women on the list, but they're all buried somewhere yeah. at, at the bottom, only trotted out for particular political issues. Why? How, how, how can it be that supposedly enlightened parties in the center, like supposedly, like Blue and White, like Likud, how, how can it be that these parties don't, don't see this as a problem? Because it is, a, it is not priority number one, two, or three. Okay, so you have Blue and White is the come together of four parties, right? And what happens is all four of those parties were male-led. So all four of them have the first four spots. And of course, you have to show that you're strong on security because that's what this country is all about. People vote on security. And so they have to have generals and they have to have people who are who are going to bring that masculine uh, strength to the to the party, especially a party where nobody. I mean, Benny Gantz was the Ramatkal, but uh, the chief of staff of the army, but nobody really knows how he's going to be as a politician. And so you have to, first of all, prove your your weight and your strength in, in a masculine way. And, and they asked yet, yet your Lapid specifically because he, Dafka, was the one guy who really was worried about making sure he had 50-50. And he said, and he made a joke, which was stupid. You don't make a joke when someone's asking you a serious question, about certainly about women. Um, but 
he said it's, it's unfortunate and he knows that it's unfortunate, but it was not the number one priority. Now, very few people vote like it or not, they very few people vote on gender now. I wouldn't vote on gender. Well, someone who has most women doesn't mean they're the person I'm going to vote for because I vote on issues. <clears throat> but until you have a well-represented, a party that has women who are well-represented, you're not going to have a balanced party that's, that is functional and fully representative. And not just because women are women. Every, you know, I certainly don't agree with every woman that I know. But, but the minute you have... Again, with people who experience life differently, people who, ex who have understanding of the way things work and understanding of men a lot of times, in, and I hate generalizing, but are, are, are very different problem solvers than women. And women sometimes are able to like see a different way or understand different, another option. I'll give you an example this, that has nothing to do with politics, but is something to do with some, the things that we deal with. The religious... Um, the religious uh, courts will not let women be judges, right? Because women can't be judges in, in, in Jewish law, in Orthodox Jewish law. So it's not possible to get a woman on the three-seat panel that are going to oversee the divorces. But it is possible to get a woman in that courtroom to represent a woman. And it is possible to get a woman into the, to the, um, to the court to oversee all of the decisions that are put down and to make suggestions, recommendations, or alternatives. And they've done so in England and in Israel. And the minute that women come into the process, creative solutions are found. Not only are creative solutions found, but also more understanding of how this is going to impact the person or how this could be done differently and get a different result. Um, it's just a fact of life that when women are put into the decision-making process, things are automatically different. California made a law that I forgot exactly what it is, but every... Um, company over a certain net worth or something like that has to have at least a certain percentage of women on their board. Otherwise, they, they aren't, they aren't in, in um, compliance with the law. So it's not just a religious thing. It's also been proven. Also, the UN. The UN has statistics on um, peace agreements that when women are brought in, the peace agreements are 33% more likely to hold. I mean, it's crazy statistics. And so it is a detriment to the entire country and the entire function of this country, of any country, when women are not part of a, a massive part of the government. Um, and we all lose. It's really an unfortunate thing. We all lose. I don't have an answer for you as to why, other than to say people don't understand the implications and the ramifications of not having women in that policymaking position. Again, I wish we had more time. We don't, but we'll we'll make some in the future, hopefully. Shoshana. I always appreciate your insight and your wisdom, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Happy Hanukkah. Be well, and uh, keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing amazing work. Thank you so very much. Shoshana Keats Jasko, founding member of Chokmat Nashim. Thanks again, and uh, you've been listening to the I-24 News podcast, Synagogue and State. Don't forget, we will be back each and every week with a new podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wagenheim. We'll talk to you again next week.